0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Father, in the written word and through the spoken word, help us to encounter your living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, particularly for visitors, we are uh, working our way through St Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, we were doing this a little while ago and we've been doing something else and today we're starting back and we're in chapter 6 and uh, it's always a good idea if you have the words open in front of you, if you'd like to do that in the, the church Bibles, it's on page 929. <clears throat> it often uh, takes a long time for Christian believers to mature into Christian behaviours. Believing is one thing, but behaving is another one. There are endless examples, of course. 200 years ago, in our colony's early days, Samuel Marsden was a wonderful pioneer missionary to the Maoris, where he had a a number of trips over to New Zealand, the first uh, missionary to that country. And he was a very successful Anglican minister at Parramatta at the start of the 1800s. He was also, the governor at the time thought, the best farmer in the colony. He was also, on top of all that, a magistrate. And uh, this was not an unusual thing in those days, but what was unusual was that he got the title or the, the name of being the flogging parson. He once inexcusably and against the law ordered one Irish Catholic rebel to be whipped and appalling 350 times. So he was trying to find out where the guns were hidden. So an example of which there's, even in our own lives, it's not difficult to imagine them, but our top Christian believers can sort of be slow also to become Christian behaviours. You're a believer, that's great. Are you a behaviour as well? It was very difficult for the Corinthian Christians. uh, They were making slow progress in becoming Christian behaviours It was, of course, only five years or so uh, after the church had been started by St Paul, but they were still showing many characteristics of their pagan Greek background, rather than being transformed very much into the character and the qualities of Jesus. They were, sadly, rather impressed with their own Christianity, but St Paul certainly was not, and those of you who have heard the The first five chapters of his letter to them, there was certainly plenty of things that he was not pleased with. But here in this short passage that was read today, three times he thunders at them, don't you know? And you can just, uh, you can feel the frustration dripping from the page. Three times in this, just, he's disgusted with them. He is very, very disappointed. Now they've got two serious faults that he's talking about here. There are other serious faults elsewhere in the letter. So as you can see in verse 8, he says, you yourselves wrong and defraud and believers at that. In other words, even within the church, there are some people who are conning or doing something to other people in the church that is wrong. And then he goes back in verse 6, he says, and a believer goes to court against a believer and before unbelievers... Or up in verse 1, he says, before the unrighteous. In other words, some of them are diddling one another and then the losers are dragging their antagonists off to the civil court to get redress or to get whatever they're after. They're still being Greek. They're not being Christian. Both actions, he says, are wrong. And uh, you can see St Paul shaking his head in disbelief when he he hears the news. And so he writes in verse 9, Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Don't have yourself on. This defrauding and dragging off to the secular court for revenge is unrighteous, is eternally dangerous and has to stop. Now, we've got a number of important little side comments, otherwise we're left in uh, some very queering sort of places. The first one is, there is nothing wrong with Christians having serious differences with each other. Nothing at all. Uh, years ago in one of my parishes, we rebuilt the church and uh, the congregation had lots of people in it who were 60 and over and we had lots of people also who very keen between the 20s and through to 20 to 40 and almost nobody apart from me in the middle. And the oldies wanted to keep all the traditional pews and the traditional pulpit and uh, that sort of thing, and the youngies, they were dead keen to have modern chairs and no pulpit, just a minimalist lectern. It It became a very serious debate, a dispute, because both groups genuinely thought that their view would be what works best for bringing and attracting and keeping people belonging to the church. Now, that sort of thing will regularly happen in churches that are really seriously trying to win people to be converts. So when people care about something, they will speak up. And sooner or later, here and there, there will be disputes. It's to be expected. In fact, it's healthy. What is crucial is that we conduct our disputes with so much deliberate mutual respect... And so much effort to see the other person's point of view that our relationships can actually get stronger thanks to the dispute. Well, that certainly was not what was happening in Corinth. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be defrauded, he says. Now... At first, uh, hearing it, this does sound like uh, taking Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek perhaps a bit too far. I mean, when you stop and think not going to court uh, when I think that I have been uh, done by somebody has two very bad results. First of all, it leaves me being resentful and that is really a bad place to be. And secondly, it leaves my defrauder having got away with it and therefore tempted to do it again. I'm leading him or her into temptation by not standing up and saying woo. Well then, the question then arises, what good result could possibly outweigh those two obvious bad results? What possible reason could there be for not using the courts to gain what I should have? Well, it's a rather long answer. And to sort it out, we need to remember Paul's view of the church. Now, he called the church the body of Christ, not the body of Christians, which is what we probably would have called the church if we'd been uh, uh, the person responsible for giving a description. The body of Christ. Now, Paul had been the fanatical persecutor of the Christians when the risen Jesus spoke to him personally. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers, but why are you persecuting me? That's how closely Jesus identified himself with the church. And so Paul learned that day that Jesus in heaven is linked to his church on earth, to all believers, so linked, that Paul calls the church the body of Christ. In a couple of chapters' time, we're going to read in this same letter Paul saying to the Christians, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it, a body. With our own bodies, uh, when every part functions properly, the whole body operates in an extraordinary harmony and efficiency. I mean, how many muscles have to cooperate perfectly in order for you to run or for you to dance or even just to digest a meal or even just to sleep, let alone play the piano or something complicated? Our bodies are countless bits cooperating perfectly. And so Paul declares, look, it is the same in the church. He writes... As each part does its work, the whole body builds itself up in love. There's something deep, something deeply sacred about the church. And there's also something very practical about the church. It's Jesus' shopfront, the church is his advertisement, it's his website. At the Last Supper, as Jesus thought about all the future believers who were to uh, all the generations ahead, including these Corinthians that Paul's writing to, including us, Jesus prayed this, as we heard in the first reading. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. For what purpose? So that the world may believe you sent me. It's a very, very significant prayer that Jesus prayed. He prayed that we would be so united, so actively close to each other, so voluntarily tied together as the Father and the Son are tied together that the world will believe. Our unity, our harmony, our oneness in every way is to be so strong and therefore so different to our rest of society that the unbeliever will be turned into a believer by being impressed. So harmony then is in the church is God's plan and it's also his gift. And our role is to work hard to preserve it because it's so easily lost. Paul teaches us. he said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And we make this effort in endless ways. For instance, Paul says to them, each of you must speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we're all members of one body. But he says a lot more than that. For instance, writing to another church in Greece, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. But consider others better than yourself. Look out not for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he went on to say, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, when we in the church start achieving that, people will notice. Heads will turn, hearts will melt, doubters will believe. But while we're hurting each other, and even publicly dragging one another off to the civil court, the spirit of Christ is hidden. Jesus' prayer goes unanswered. Outsiders are only too pleased to be outside. We can even be detested. Now, Paul says, verse 7, why not rather be defrauded? Now, of course, he's not a fan of people being defrauded by a brother just to keep peace in the church. He has a different solution. His plan A, sort it out in-house. So verse 1, take it before the saints in the church not in the public courts. Now, this, he's sure, is what should always happen. I, I doubt if he really ever expected anyone to willingly be defrauded. I mean, that would be surely, at best, the absolute last resort. It's like he writes this to almost... Uh, as an, almost as an exaggeration in order to make his point stronger. And the point looks like never hang the church's dirty laundry in the public eye. Now, today when we hear a sentence like that, usually I think it makes us feel a bit nervous because hiding the church's dirty laundry has been a very bad thing of late. A Catholic archbishop has just been given a sentence of 12 months detention for refusing to hang the church's dirty laundry in public. Just before that... Our Anglican bishops in Perth and in Grafton have resigned in shame because they refused to hang the church's dirty laundry in the public eye. All three kept quiet when they heard that there were cler- some of their clergy in their diocese were active pedophiles. They tried to protect the church's name, but in doing so they prevented proper action. Paul wants privacy but he also wants proper action. So we turn to Paul's practical but spiritual answer. He notes what they were doing in verse 4. If you have disputes, then do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? Well, you do, but you shouldn't, he's saying. You must do better than that. And in verse 5, here it is. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another. Now, this was the traditional Jewish way. The two uh, arguers take their dispute to the rabbi. Now, the system had been going on for ages and Paul knew that this system, it's got a good track record. It was working. And the Christians should be doing the same thing. Now... Our mind immediately says, well, why? What, what advantage could there be in having an in-house judge? Where, where's the, where's the gain in that? Well, here are three possibilities and you might be able to add others. The first advantage in doing it in-house is that the whole thing will get started so much earlier, even before the situation gets extremely serious. I mean, other folk in the church know when there's people who normally get on are not getting on, and they'll urge them, if they know there is someone in the church who's responsible or does this well, they'll urge them, look, go and see the the reconciler, whether it's the rector or somebody else, long before the conflict has got to the stage where it's no hope and uh, somebody in desperation goes off to the secular court. Our modern experience certainly is that the sooner conflict resolution starts, the better chance there is of a healthy end, and even a mutually accepted resolution. The stitch in time may well save nine. The second reason is that an in-house experience should be, by and large, less formal, less public, less confronting and therefore less aggressive, and so less likely to cause a permanent rift. It happens quicker, less likely to have ongoing damage, and then thirdly, the church-appointed judge will usually have a past relationship with both parties, will expect to have a future relationship with both parties, And we'll also have a desire to see this dispute settled amicably before it morphs into hatred and spreads in the ranks of the church as others are sucked into taking sides. The chances are that the church-appointed judge will be more geared to the long-term feelings of the protagonists because these people matter to him. His dream will be to help them to respect each other and even to be reconciled because that is the New Testament's goal for every dispute. As Jesus said, be reconciled to your brother. Now Paul intriguingly offers another reason that pops up several times in the New Testament but gives us very little detail. In verse 2 he says, saints will judge the world. Verse 3... We are to judge angels. This reminds us that Jesus had once said, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will also sit on thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And Paul also wrote to other people, he said, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So heaven... Eternal life will mean us being in some real way at work with Christ, sharing his activity, including judgment. Of course, this will be after we are changed significantly into his likeness with his wisdom and his knowledge. I mean, a massive change from where we are now. But uh, Paul's not worried about that. He simply asks Look, if you're going to be doing this in heaven, why are you avoiding getting on with it now? Verse 2, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge trivial cases? So from time to time, most church leaders at all levels get involved sorting out serious squabbles in the ranks. And the archdeacons get involved if it's the clergyman that's uh, the part of the problem. It should happen more. Uh, And it would if only all of us accepted how absolutely essential it is for the whole body of Christ in a parish to be in harmony. Just like the muscles in a healthy body. Just like the closeness of the Father and the Son. It's what Jesus prayed for. And so, it is our vision, our goal, it's not an option. Here and there, Christians will have disputes, yep. But these have to be carried out in such a way that our mutual love must keep on shining through. We are to deeply respect each other. And the church is to provide wise conflict managers because, verse 7 To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.